Uh, we're a couple weeks into a sermon series, and I feel like I've talked about movies. Every, every, every one of these sermons, I've mentioned how much I love movies, and I really do love movies. And I've got some movies that I love so much that I have them literally, like, in me. You know what I mean? They're in my bones. I've got movies. You know, there's a movie where you'll be walking, and I know you have them too. You'll be walking, uh, you know, past the, in the hallway, and you'll hear just a sound of a movie, and you'll know like exactly where in that movie it is, what just happened, what's about to happen, what's going to happen. Uh, you've got those movies. You've got movies that you have memorized, right? You guys have some movies memorized. I know you do. Rocky IV is one of those for me, all right? I've got the whole movie. I just front and back, all right, Rocky IV. Um, I've got, uh, let's see, a couple, of, what, are, what are some of the other favorite ones? Oh, yeah, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I've got that one down. I could do that whole speech that Robin Hood, that, that Kevin Costner gives, you know, to the crew. Um, uh, Dumb and Dumber, I've got just front to back. Just, I've got it on lockdown. I mean, it's just, I just know every word. Um, my, one of my boys was in the backyard the other day and he was looking at a bird and he said, pretty bird, pretty bird. And I just laughed. I just, it was hilarious. Uh, Sound of Music. I do. I've got it. Guys, it's a long movie. It's a long movie, but I've got it down. Because that was like the movie that we would watch when we were sick at home. When I was growing up, when you're a kid, and if you're sick at home, it's Sound of Music. That's just what happens. And Fiddler on the Roof. Um, awesome. Uh, I, uh, I know you guys have your own, but uh, you know, the, these movies that we love so much, I mean, we, we, we know them so much that they're in us. And so uh, as Christ followers, here's our conviction is that there's this Christian story, the story of, of God and how he's, he's come to us through Jesus Christ, that it's, it's this story that we don't just want to know, we just don't want to know a few things about, but we want to get it in us. And I think probably what we end up doing sometimes when we try to read the Bible um, is we're taught to read the Bible usually to do our daily devotions. And daily devotions are so, so good. I, high, I highly encourage that you do daily devotions or every other day devotions or every week devotions, you know, whatever your, whatever your rhythm is. But what we tend to do when we read devotions is you read a tiny little section and you're kind of just like plopped into, a, into a, the middle of a story somewhere. And sometimes it's hard to kind of like take a step back and know the whole story. So this sermon series that we've been in, and we're going to be in until Easter, it's going to lead us right up till Easter, is we just want to take a step back and we just want to get a big picture of the whole, whole story so that we can know it, so we can understand it. Not just so we can know it and understand it, but so we can take it in and so we can embody it. We can live it out. We can work out its implications all throughout our lives. And our conviction is this, is that the Christian story is the most compelling story that there is, that Jesus Christ is the most compelling person that there ever, that there ever is and ever was. And so, therefore, it just makes me wonder sometimes why more people don't find the Christianity compelling. Why don't, there's so many people that don't find the Christian story or Jesus compelling. And I just think it's because that maybe there's a lot of people who haven't met any compelling Christians or haven't encountered a compelling church, or maybe they just haven't heard the story in a compelling way. And so that's what we're doing. We're just trying to just get different looks on this whole story. And if you're here and if you have, maybe like you're new to this whole church thing and you're just, this whole story is brand new to you, maybe you've heard little bits and pieces I'm so glad you're here because this is just going to give you a really kind of broad picture of what this Christian story is about. And I hope, I hope that it just, it answers some questions. I hope it, 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 it smooths out some, some rough edges in your mind about what this whole story is about. And my suspicion is that though for many of us, is you've been in church maybe for a while and you've heard a lot of these stories and maybe you grew up going to church like I did and 
you've heard all the Bible stories, and you, every time you hear a Bible story, you're like, oh, I've heard that one before, so it's easy to check out. But for, for those of you that are maybe in that camp, I'm, I'm, I want to push you in a different direction. I don't want you just to ask the question, do I know this? I don't want you just to ask, do I know this? I want you to ask, can I share this? It's a different sort of question. You probably know this, but it's a whole different story to, have, to know it so much that it's in your bones so that in a moment's notice when somebody says, hey, you, like, you're, you go to church, like you're a, you're a Christian, I've got questions. And you could say, done, come on, let's, let's, let's go out. Let's, let me buy you a coffee and we'll just sit down and I'd love to answer, I'd love to tell you the story. Can you, can you share the story? So as we're just going through this sermon series and certainly this morning, Put it through that filter. Can I share this? Do I know it um, enough? Um, we're going to talk about something today that probably didn't cross your mind when you were driving here. Probably didn't cross your mind at any point during this last week. Um, but it's actually one of the biggest themes in scripture. And I really believe that you're going to be glad you came today. All right. Uh, the funny thing is uh, we're talking about this word covenant. Covenant. It's a word that, uh, that you probably weren't thinking about. Um, when you think about all the words that describe Christianity, probably covenant might not even be in your top 20. It might not be in your top 40. Um, but I think, especially after just studying this week and just, just diving in to all of this, uh, just thinking about covenant, this word and what it means in the scripture, I think it should be in your top five. It should be in your top five. And we're not really used to that. The funny thing is, and the ironic thing is, is I've never preached on this word ever. <laughs> In fact, we're going to look at this passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 15, and it is a monumental moment that happens. And I'm convinced of this. If you understand what's happening in Genesis chapter 15, you will understand the story of the Bible and the story of Christianity. And I've never preached on Genesis 15, and I'm stoked to preach on Genesis 15 because I've never done it before. Um, but usually there's one place, there's one place in our lives where we've encountered this word covenant. There's a ceremony that still happens today where we use the word. Anybody know what ceremony that might be? A wet, a mawage, thank you. <laughs> mawage, that was quick, I like that. It's like the only place in our culture, in our Western culture, where we use the word covenant. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's not a word that's in our vocabulary. Um, and, uh, you know, because we're, we're just not used to it. It's not a concept that we're used to. I was thinking, like, what some things that would be close to a covenant. And I thought about, you know, we're members of a lot of things. I pulled out my wallet earlier, and I pulled out some things that, um, that I'm a member of. Um, I've got... I've got OMSI. I'm a member at OMSI, all right? I use this one. This is a nice strong card, so I use it to help scrape my, uh, my window in the morning sometimes. Um, but it still works. You know, I've got my, I've got my past, pastoral license, so that's good. I do have a pastoral license, by the way, everybody. Here's proof, in case anybody was wondering. Uh, I've got, you know, I've got my insurance companies, you know, that I'm, that I'm a member of. Um, I've got my Costco, Costco membership right here. I was just there yesterday. Um, and then my favorite membership of all is my Bymart membership. Yeah. <laughs> I love Bymart. It's one of my favorite places. I love the security at Bymart. That's my favorite. <laughs> they have the best security. Um, anyways. The funny thing about membership is, you know, we're, we're members of all sorts of things in our, in our culture today. But, you know, membership doesn't mean a whole lot in our culture today. Maybe not, maybe, maybe not to, maybe before membership was much stronger. But in our culture today, membership doesn't mean a whole lot. It means much more like a consumer relationship. It's a consumer relationship. Because even with, with any of these memberships, really, if I find a better deal down the street, I'm going down the street. You know what I mean? 
I mean, I, I'm usually, sometimes I'm a member of these places because they give me free perks. You know, they give me like gas points or whatever. And so sure, I'll be a member, but... Um, you know, I'm not emotionally tied to these places. It's a consumer relationship. It's kind of like a contractual relationship. Um, if you do this for me, then, you know, I'll continue to be a member. But if you don't do that for me, then, you know, I'll go down the street and, and find, find another place to be a member of. And that's usually kind of like how we navigate a lot of our different relationships that are around us. But covenant is a different animal entirely. It's a completely different thing. When, when people make a covenant, or in, or in old times, when people used that word and made a, made a covenant, it was, you were bound together in, in not just a financial way, not just in a, you know, not just in a contractual way. You were bound together in, in just, in all sorts of different ways, you were bound together. A covenant was a really, really strong thing. It was forming a partnership, and it had a couple different things to it. The classic idea of what a covenant is with someone is, is a couple things. It's contractual. So there is a contractual thing involved. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and we're agreeing that we're going to do this together. It's legal. So there's these legal bindings that has to do with, like, the government that you're a part of, and, you know, the, the, the legislation isn't part of that somewhere. Um, there's ramifications legally if you, if you break off, you know, this covenant. It's personal. It's deeply personal. See, I'm not, you know, like, it's not personal between me and Costco necessarily. But when you make a covenant with, with a real covenant, it's, it's, sure, it's contractual and legal, but it's also personal. There's this personal element involved. It's also social, so it's not just you, but it's the, the people, it affects the people around you, because especially in cultures, um, cultures past, you know, our, we're so individualized in our culture today that in cultures past, it was so much more connected. People were connected in so many deeper ways. And so a, a covenant is social, but it's also spiritual as well. There's this like spiritual component of when people used to make a covenant, they would say, hey, in front of everyone, in front of, you know, like our legally, um, socially, um, contractually, um, and then also under God, because he's, he's the one that made us and made this whole thing. This is this covenant that we're making. And so that's why when the Bible talks about marriage, the Bible uses the language of covenant, not contract. Because the Bible understands that marriage is a, it's, it's not a contract. It's not a, I'll do this if you do this sort of a thing. And if you don't, I'll go down the street and find somebody else that will give it to me. But marriage is supposed to be this covenant sort of thing. And the, the idea of covenant is all throughout the scripture. And therefore, it's shocking when we realize that God doesn't want a contract with us. God's not interested in giving us some rules. And maybe, see, this is what you thought about Christianity. I don't know. But maybe you thought that Christianity was all about God has given us some rules, and as long as we hold up our end of the bargain, he'll bless us. Or if you hold up our end of the bargain, he'll let us into heaven at the end. And if we just do our part, then he'll do his part, and then we kind of have this contract going on. And it's shocking to realize, it's beautiful to realize that God is not interested in making a contract with us. He wants something so much deeper. He wants something that looks much more like a marriage. He wants a covenant with us. A covenant. What does that mean? Well, um, I'm going to unpack Genesis chapter 15, and then at the end, we're going to go to the Lord's table, and we're going to take communion together. Um, and I'm looking forward to that, to do that with you today. Um, Genesis 15, if you understand this, this little story that I'm about to read to you and share with you, um, you understand the story. You get it. You get it. 
Genesis 15, all right? It's all at the very beginning of your Bible, just a couple pages in. You got Genesis 15. Plenty has happened at this point. And we've spent some weeks in the last couple of weeks kind of unpacking creation stuff. And then there's this snake in the garden. And what's that about? That was last week. So if you got questions about that, listen, uh, listen to that message from last week. Uh, but uh, what's happened is God's got, you know, there's, there's issues, there's problems. Humans, you know, have decided not to trust God. And so there's consequences to that because God created us to, to live and work and, and have our being with him at the center of our lives. But when we push him out, things go wrong. And so there's a flood that happens. And then there's this Tower Babel thing that happens, this Tower of Babel. But in the midst of all this craziness, God wants to sort of pull out a, a family. He wants to pull out uh, this group of people out from all the rest of the people, not because they're better, not because they've earned it, not because, you know, they're going to get like special, special kudos, but that God wants to pull this people out because he says, listen, I'm going to, I want to be God over this group of people. And by me being God over this group of people, I want the, all the nations to see what it looks like, what it looks like for me to be, to, for me to be king. And so he pulls out this guy named Abram. Now, later on, his name becomes Abraham. Just, just to make sure we know we're all talking about the same person. Because I'm going to use, uh, in this passage I'm going to read in Genesis 15, his name isn't Abraham yet. His name is Abram. But just in case I slip and say Abraham, you know exactly I'm talking about the same guy. All right? It's Abram, Abraham. Here's this guy. And, uh, and God's given him some promises already. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but uh, here's what happens. I'll just start reading. So Genesis 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Now, any good Bible you know, reader, whenever you see after this, you have to ask the question, after what? What just happened? After what just happened here? Something just happened. And so I'll tell you what just happened. So in the chapter before, Abraham has just been called out from his country, which would be around modern-day Iraq. And he's traveling west, and God's taken him to this new location, this new place. And they're traveling through all these kind of foreign areas, and he's got his whole family with him. He's got a huge entourage. And they're traveling through some very dangerous places. And in those days, there wasn't like one king necessarily over country. It was like a king over every city. It was like city-state kings. And they're kind of like mafia bosses. And so they're like going through like all these different cities, and his nephew, Lot, gets kidnapped by one of these mafia bosses. And so Abram, what's he going to do? He pulls together 300 of his fiercest fighting guys, and they do like a Navy SEAL night raid into one of these cities to, to rescue back his nephew Lot. And so they rescue him. This, the, the, the mission is a success. They get him home. But then you wake up the next morning, and you realize that you're on somebody's most wanted list. <laughs> You've got, you've got a mafia boss that's out for you, you, you know, and there's, maybe there's posters up at this point. I mean, so he's nervous. He's afraid, rightly so. People are after him. And so in this context, God says, God says, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Verse 2, but Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can I give you, or what can you, uh, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so, I, so, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Okay, so they're talking about this conversation that they had had two decades before. This is two decades after God had come to, to Abraham and, or to Abram and Sarai, his wife, and, uh, and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And at that point, they're like seven, they're in their 70s, and they're like, whoa, great nation. 
That requires childbearing, and we're a little old at this point. And now it's two decades later. Abraham, Abram and Sarai are in their 90s. And Abram, Abram's like, and God, you remember that promise you made me about a kid? Like, any day now, because the clock is ticking, all right? Like, is this promise ever going to come through? And so he's got questions about that. And then the word of the Lord came to him. This is verse 4. This, this man, God says, this Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then he took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. And so I think there's a, there's a picture. I got a picture of just like somebody standing out in the stars. Just imagine, I mean, this is where before, you know, cities, before like, you know, there's all the lights that would, can compete with the stars. I mean, he's go, he goes out and he looks up. Have you ever done that? You've done that before, just on a clear night away from the city. And it's just mind boggling. You just look up at all the stars. And here's Abram and he's looking up at all the stars. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at all the stars. And he says this, he says, look at the stars. If indeed you can count them, because he obviously can't. And God says, so shall your offspring be. And then the very next verse is really strange. Abram says this. In verse 6, Abram, it says that he believed the Lord and that the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. It's an interesting verse. He believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness, which is just, just backwards to how we're normally used to thinking. Because we normally think, okay, if I'm going to trust God, then I need to do a whole lot of things. I need to behave in all certain, certain ways in order to get him to, or in order to, you know, to, to prove to him that I trust him. I've got to do all this stuff. But Abram hasn't really done anything yet. God just said, Abram's like, hey, what about that promise? And God says, trust me, trust me. And then apparently Abram in that moment says, I trust you. That's all he does. He doesn't behave his way in at all. He just trusts. This is just backwards to how we normally view faith. Usually we think like, okay, God given me some rules. And in order for me to be righteous, I've got to follow all those rules. And then I've got to be a good rule follower. And then I'll be righteous. But here's Abraham. It's completely different. God says, what I want you to do is trust me. And out of that trust, because he trusts him, now it's going to change the way he behaves. It's going to be a new, new thing that's happening in his heart, and it's credited to him as righteousness. It's all, all God asks is for Abram at this point to just, to just trust what happens next. Verse 7, he also said to him, this is Abram talking to the Lord. Uh, sorry, um, no, this is the Lord still talking, sorry. The Lord said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur uh, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So this is funny because he's a guy who's, Abram, he's got questions about this child that God promised. And then now he's got questions about this land that God, that God promised. All right, okay, I'm trusting you about the, the child, but what about the land? And so how does God respond to, uh, to Abram's question about the, this land? How's God going to kind of prove, you know, his loyalty to Abraham? How's this all going to work? Well, obviously, obviously, God says, uh, so the Lord says to him, bring me a heifer. <laughs> this story just gets, this story's awesome. It's just so, it's just like, we, would, we wouldn't make this up. You know what I mean? I mean, God's like, okay, I'm going to, bring me a heifer. And then it goes on. He says, not only that, but a goat and a ram each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon and a partridge in a pear tree. God tells, him, God tells him to bring all these animals. 
Now, at this point, we don't really quite know what's going on, but the readers, early readers of this, and certainly Abram at this point, he knows exactly what's about to happen. But we're not quite sure yet. But it keeps going. Verse 10, Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. (laughs) What is happening? I mean, what is involved in sawing a heifer in two, you know? I mean, this is, this is a scene right here. I mean, this is a bloody, a bloody mess. Is literally, he, he saws the, the cow and then the goat, and then, the, you know, the, he, and, then, and then what he does is he arranges them in this, he, he set, puts the two parts, the, the two halves, and he separates them to make like an aisle, to make like an aisle. This is like a bloody, a bloody aisle. And, and what is going on? See, we're just so not used to this. But see, ancient readers and Abraham would know exactly what's going on. Because this is how, in those days, you would make a covenant with someone. It was this covenant-making ceremony where you would, you would make an agreement with someone. And then you would take these animals and you would, you would cut them in half and you would make an aisle. And then you would literally walk down the aisle with this, with this person that you're making a covenant with. And it's doing a couple things. I mean, it's like, it takes some time to set up, you know? I mean, what this basically is in ancient days is like, you know, the spit shake or the pinky swear, you know? But like times 20, times 50. I mean, it takes time to do all this. I mean, you got to think it through. And then when you're walking through, you know, why, why the blood? Like why the, the dead animals? Well, this is why. Is because you were in making the ceremony together, you were enacting the consequences of breaking that, that covenant if you broke the covenant. So by cutting those animals in half, you're, you're saying, listen, we're going to walk down the aisle. We're making this covenant together. But if one of us breaks this covenant, may what happened to the heifer happen to me. And may what happened to the goat happen to you. I mean, it would, it would, they're, they're walking out the consequences of breaking the covenant together as they walk down the aisle. And ancient readers would have known exactly what's going on here. Oh, they're making a covenant. Watch, it talks about it in one other, a couple other places in the scripture, but the perfect place to go to is, is Jeremiah 34. In Jeremiah 34, here's what's going on, is there's these Israelite kings and they've made a covenant to free some slaves. They have some slaves in their midst and they've made a covenant to the people and under God to free these slaves and say, okay, these slaves, we're, we're, we're setting them free. And they did set them free, but then a little bit later, they just went and got them all back and just brought all those slaves back. And in Jeremiah 34, God is ticked. God is angry. Listen to what it says. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Since you have not obeyed me, by, obeyed me by setting your countrymen free, I will set you free to be destroyed. I love that phrasing, by the way. So since you didn't set the slaves free, I'm going to set you free to be killed, <laughs> to be destroyed by war, disease, and famine. You will be an object of horror to all the nations of the earth. Because you have broken the terms of our covenant, I will cut you apart just as you cut apart the calf when you walked between its halves to solemnize your vows. Yes, I will cut you apart, whether you are officials of Judah or Jerusalem, court officials, priests, or common people, for you have broken your oath. I will give you to your enemies, and they will kill you. Your bodies will be food for the vultures and wild animals. Stakes are high when it comes to these covenants. And so they walk. So, you know, so here's Abram, and he knows what's going to happen. 
God's making a covenant with him. So he prepares the animals. He gets this, you know, red wedding ready for them. He makes the aisle. And then verse 12. Guys, it gets so good. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick dreadful darkness came over him. Now, why is he asleep? I don't know. Maybe he's tired from beating away the buzzards all day. And, but, you know, but the question is, is why, why hasn't he, why haven't anybody walked down the aisle yet? Nobody's walked down the aisle. Abram hasn't walked down the aisle. God hasn't showed up yet to like walk down the aisle, whatever that's going to look like. So like, what's going on? I mean, it's all set up and it's ready to go, but nobody's walked down the aisle. So maybe he's just waiting. Maybe he's, he's just tired. So he falls asleep. And there's this, like, he kind of has this dream, and God kind of starts speaking to them in this dream. And here's what happens. Verse 13, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they, they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It's just interesting. You know, what, what, is, what do you think God's pointing to here? They're going to be enslaved to this group of people, but then they're going to be freed. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Like a really famous story? Right, it's the Exodus story. God's given Abraham this big, huge preview, just, you know, just way, way beforehand about here, here's what's going to happen. God's going to deliver them. And then what happens next is nobody could have predicted. Nobody would make this up. What happens next is unbelievable, and it's at the heart of what we believe as Christ followers. Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. <laughs> what? What is going on? The Bible's so strange. That's blazing torch. Now we like a, we're like a fire pot and a blazing torch. But again, if we were Jewish and if we were in this period and if we were, you know, if we 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 would know exactly what this means. Because like in movies today where you want to depict God, you either pick Morgan Freeman or or you know, like uh, you know, what's the, what's the guy's name that smokes the cigar? He's, uh, George Burns, right, thanks. Uh, you know, like, you know, in the movies, you know, you got to pick, like, something to, to, to kind of image God. But what we know from just looking at the scriptures is that when God wants to show up someplace in his glory, in his presence, it's, it looks often like fire. It looks like smoke. And so when it says that there's this, there's this smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared. What is going on here? You know, you, you can tell already what's going on here. Here's God. Here he is. And it's depicted, it just in his marvelousness and his brilliance, it's depicted as this smoking fire pot, this torch, and it's so profound. Who is walking down the aisle? God. Where's Abram? Still asleep, apparently. Why isn't God walking down the aisle with Abram? This is how a covenant is supposed to be made, guys. Is Abram, Abram supposed to be there with God and they walk down together? But no. God walks down the aisle all in his lonesome. 
which, guys, is, is incredible, unfathomable that God would do this. Here was, here's what God is doing. God is making this profound statement that he looks at us human beings and he says, listen, I know that you're not going to hold up your end of the covenant. Do you think God knows this? Oh, yeah, he knows this. Do you know what happens in the very next chapter of, of Abram and Sarai? Oh, like Jerry Springer stuff happens in the very next, in the very next chapter. Weird, shady stuff. And there's like, I, you know, they can't get pregnant. So they're like, okay, and then I'll sleep with the servant girl and we'll get, we'll get a child that way. And it's like, no, no, you just had this conversation with God and he promised. And remember the stars, you looked at the stars and, you know, come on. God knows that that's exactly what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 16. And God says, okay, but I'm not going to let your failure dictate the, 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 the future of humanity and my relationship with them. I'm not going to let your, your failure mess it up because I know, I know that you're going to fail. And so God says, so here's what I'm going to do. I am going to be the faithful covenant partner. And here's what happens. And I put it on the screen so you can take notes because it's just so profound. He's saying that he will shoulder the responsibility of covenant faithfulness. He will be faithful for both parties and, and he will shoulder the consequences of our covenant failure. It's a double whammy. He says, not only am I going to be faithful for both parties, but I will suffer the consequences of your failure. That's the kind of God I am. Listen, if there is any question about what kind of character God has, how much he loves us, how much he cares about us, what, what his mission is in the world with us, it's not to just make us get in line by giving us some rules. He's, he's, he's so faithful to, faithful to us like, like a, he wants a marriage with us. He wants a covenant and he knows that we're going to fail at it. And so he comes in and steps in and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry the burden of both parties. I'm just going to do it for everyone because my grace is just that huge. Verse 18. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And then he lists off a bunch of Canaanite people groups. Listen, if you understand this chapter, you understand the whole story. In spite of our faithlessness, God will be the faithful partner. And not only that, there's got to be, there's got to be, there's consequences to breaking the covenant. There's consequences to it. And so who's going to pay? Are we going to pay? Is God going to make us pay? No, he's not going to make us pay. Um, hey, listen, some implications. And then I want to take us to the Lord's Supper this morning. Here's some implications. First, uh, number one, God's promises are sure even if you aren't tasting them yet. God's promises are sure even, even if you're not tasting them yet. Uh, remember, Abraham and Sarah, they received this promise of a child before they died. And then, or, but, you know, then they had to wait two decades. And then they had to wait even more. And then remember this land that God promised? Do you know that when Abraham and Sarah died, do you know how much land they owned when they died? They owned enough land to bury their bodies. That's how much land they owned. Imagine. Imagine being Abraham and Sarah. You have a child now, that's great, but you've got no land. And God promised you land. God, God walked down the aisle 
to prove that you could trust him with your land. And here you are in your deathbed and you own a burial plot. <laughs> how, much, how tempted would you be to believe that God had failed or that you had failed or that God was out to lunch, that God was interested in helping other people but not you? Like, I can't trust God. He's let me down. How tempted would, how tempted would you be to believe all that? When really what, what we know from the story, because we have hindsight, is that they're going to get their land. Oh, yes. God is faithful. God is faithful. But they didn't, they didn't get a chance to see the fruit. And isn't that what we want often when we want to believe God's promises to us? We want fruit. We want to see it. We want to pray on Monday, and then we want it to happen on Tuesday. And if it doesn't happen on Tuesday, we'll maybe pray again and hope it happens on Wednesday. If it doesn't happen on Wednesday, we just really believe that it happens on Friday. And if it doesn't happen on Friday, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why aren't you doing something about this? When we have to remember that God is working with us as individuals, but he's working with us generationally. God was blessing Abraham and Sarah, but he was blessing their descendants through them, through their faithfulness, through their, their attitude of just saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. So do you feel like God hasn't come through? Listen, you, you can trust his promises. You can trust him because God is in the business. Sure, of, of, I hope you see fruit of God's promises in your life. I hope so. But remember this, your decisions now are impacting your kids, your kids' kids, your kids' kids' kids, your kids' kids' kids. Your faithfulness today has impact on people 40, 100, 400 years down the line from you. So don't give up. Don't get weary and tired of obeying God. Don't get weary and tired of just believing in his promises because God not only wants to bless you, he wants to bless others through you. And so that just means every day we just look at the stars and we say, God, even though I don't see it, even though I don't have the land yet, even though I, I don't know how I'm, we're gonna have a kid, gotta look up at the stars and I trust you. I feel like preaching this morning on a Sunday. I feel like I need, a, I feel like I need an amen from somebody here. Okay. Number two, wait, back to, num back to number one. Don't give up. Don't give up. You might be weary and tired. I just believe, just God, where are you? Don't give up. Stay faithful. Number two is this. You can absolutely trust him. You can trust him. This whole picture of this aisle, it's supposed to make us think of a wedding, isn't it? In fact, it makes you wonder like, oh, maybe that's where wedding ceremonies came from. <laughs> it's this covenant ceremony. Now, we don't cut animals in half. Although, if you're getting married sometime soon, you could consider doing that at your ceremony. Um, be a little sticky walking down the aisle. But getting married is scary, isn't it? Getting married is scary. That's why a lot of people push it off. That's why a lot of people say, oh, I don't know if I want to do it because it's scary. Because two people are standing at the aisle and they're, they're looking at each other and they're saying, they're, they're promising the world to each other. They're promising their faithfulness and they're promising, you know, till death do us part. They're promising all this stuff. But it's scary because you're standing there and you're like, are they going to follow through? Am I going to follow through? I mean, can they back up their words? Can I back up my words? I mean, it's a scary thing. It's a risk. Because you're saying, I give myself to you, but there's, but there's that thing that just kind of floats around like, but can I trust? Can I trust? Can I trust? But God is saying this through this passage and just through the story of, of Christianity. He's saying, listen, I want you to trust me. I want to marry you. I want to marry you. Knowing full well what you're going to do, 
tomorrow. Knowing full, I know, God knows exactly what kind of marriage he's getting into with us. He knows exactly, and he still clothes us in white, and he says, listen, you can trust me, because God proved over and over and over again that he is a spouse. He is a covenant, a faithful covenant partner that we can trust. You can trust him. And number three, let this kind of covenant faithfulness be enough to earn your allegiance. Let it be enough to melt your heart this morning and trust him. So band, come on up. Um, and it's just as the band's going to come up, I just want to close us. But I want to take you to, I want to take you to Jesus now. Because here's Jesus, here's Jesus, and he's walking around, he's walking around, and he's, and he's sort of, he's God in the flesh, and he's like remaking a new covenant people. He's, he's gathering 12 disciples, he's gathering a group of people together. And, he's, and he's, he's like, and you know, instead of God giving them some, some covenant laws on Mount Sinai, God or Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's given them these, these new ways to live in a covenant relationship with him. Hey, if you wanna be, if you wanna be in my kingdom, Jesus said, then here's what I want you to do. And this is where we get the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. Let me be king, let me be Lord. And Jesus kept on saying, I'm gonna to have to go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna to have to die on the cross. And everybody was like, Jesus, that's not how you build a kingdom in this world. No, no, you're not gonna die. No, come on, you don't need to die. So right before Jesus is about to die, he is in this room with his disciples. He's in this upper room and they're about to have this meal, this famous Passover meal that they've had time and time again. But Jesus stops the meal and he says, guys, it's different tonight. And let me read it to you. It comes from Luke 22. He's with his guys and he says this. And it says, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. Broke it in two. What do you think Jesus is doing here? He's reacting, reenacting this covenant ceremony except now it's his body that's gonna be broken because of our covenant unfaithfulness. He takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. New covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. God is making a new covenant with us where he's gonna cover all the faithfulness. He's gonna cover the consequences even too of our sin. And all we get to do is do what Abraham did. We just get to trust him. We get to say, Lord, that's for me. I want that today. I want it today. Would you come to him today? As we take the bread and the cup, just like Christians have done for centuries, we got the cups of juice over here, we have these crackers over here, and we are enacting this ceremony together as a community again. And we're saying, God, it's your body that was broken. It's your blood that was poured out. This is the new covenant that you've made with us, that you wanna, you wanna pursue us because you love us that much. Would you let your heart be melted by it today? Listen, if you've taken communion tons and tons of times in the past, you're a Christian, this is kind of new, would you let it just... Well, would you let it just hit home a little bit more this morning? Would you just, would you feel it a little bit deeper? 
what God's doing. He's made a covenant with us. If you haven't made Jesus your Lord and King today, if you haven't done that before, and maybe if you've, you've dabbled in religion, you've, you've like, you've tried this, you've tried that, but you know, you've just kind of like, oh, that's for weak people and I'm not weak, I'm strong. I don't know, whatever it is that's kept you away, maybe today is your day. Maybe today's your day. Or when you come to the front, maybe for the first time you take communion and you are accepting this, covenant, this, this, this groundbreaking grace, radical grace thing that God has done for us that you're letting it into your heart today. Would you consider just making Jesus your king today? Maybe for the first time. Would you do it today? You can do it. You can do it. He loves you. He cares about you.